One thing I was doing that I think did allow us to grow so fast in those early years was all of our sales were at spikeball.com back then. You know, we were not in any retail stores. I don't think we went on Amazon until maybe year four, year five, something like that. So I emailed nearly every single customer that purchased from us. So, you know, let's say you had ordered one for me. I'd reply to your order confirmation, say, hey, Stephanie, thanks for buying Spikeball set. I'm going to be dropping your set off at the post office tonight. Should arrive there in about two days or so. I see you live in Austin. What a beautiful city. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about Spikeball? And that last question turned out to be just absolute gold. And I wasn't asking that because I was such a smart marketer. I was genuinely curious because most of our first sales were people with the same last name as me or friends that I knew, you know, what I sort of consider pity sales. Oh, Chris started this company. We'll buy one just to be nice. But when I started seeing people from all over the country buying, it's like, how in the heck did somebody from Austin hear about it? And so I'd ask people, like, how'd you hear about it? And I identified three groups that I never would have considered before. Once I had sort of identified that there was a fire burning within those communities, it's like, all right, how can I pour gas on this fire? Starting a business is hard enough. Now, try launching and building an entirely new global sport. That's one heck of a challenge. But when you have a good idea, a product, and an organic way to connect with people, it's actually possible. Chris Reuter is the CEO of Spikeball, and he initially thought his little business would be a fun side hobby. The company idea even started off with an age-old question, wouldn't it be cool if... Yeah, how many times has that happened in your life? But within five years, that little business with zero employees was earning one and a half million in revenue and attracting attention from around the world. That didn't happen by magic though. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Chris and I dug into scaling a company by asking the questions that you may think are dumb, including to your own customers. For Chris, simply asking, how did you find out about us? Was the turning point to finding an audience and then nurturing it so that it grew in the most organic way possible. He also gave us the inside scoop on his Shark Tank experience and why he encourages other entrepreneurs to take advantage of that opportunity if they're ever presented with it. Plus, Chris explains how he's been navigating the supply chain issues, including by finding new ways to expand the company beyond just physical products. Enjoy today's episode with Chris Ruder. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerceinsights, one word. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show, and I would really love it. So please, let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review. Let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. 
back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Chris Reuter, who's the CEO of Spikeball. Chris, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm very excited to talk all things Spikeball. I actually just found out about Spikeball when I moved to Austin in January. So I feel like I'm really behind the curve. But for anyone who's <laughs> like me, what is Spikeball? How would you describe it? Um, the most common description I hear is it's that weird trampoline game you saw people playing at the park or beach. In Austin, more often than not, I believe it's Zilker Park. I've heard tons mm-hmm. of people play there. Um, but yeah, it looks like yes. a mini trampoline almost, but you don't jump on it. You've got an inflatable rubber ball and you've got, you play two on two. It's, sort of, it's a game that you volley back and forth. A lot of similar traits to volleyball, but rather than hitting a ball over the net, you spike the ball onto the net and, you know, uh, the two team, each team gets up to three hits, just like in volleyball. And when you hit it on the net towards the other team, it's now their turn to uh, use their three hits to get it on. And if you can't get the ball on the net, the other team gets a point. Uh, first team to 21 wins. Usually that description uh, confuses more people. Um, so relying on the internet to looking at an image usually uh, works a lot better. Yeah, we uh, we were playing it. My neighborhood had a little street party and one of the women brought it out and I was like, what is this? And my three year old was trying to play and he just kept stealing the ball. And after a while, I got the hang of it. But super fun. When was the first time you experienced spike ball in your life? Uh, 1989, uh, which seems like 100 years ago. Um, But I was 14 at the time and uh, lived in a town called Kankakee, Illinois, which is about an hour south of Chicago. And some of my brother's friends actually bought one at a toy store, brought it back to the neighborhood and they played a bunch. I was sort of the young, annoying brother. So I wasn't really allowed to play with them, but looked cool. I uh, played a little bit then. And from what we little we knew, the original company that uh, launched it, launched it in 1989, but killed it in 1991. So had a very brief first life. And then uh, my brother, those friends, and I kind of kept playing on and off over the years. And then eventually, you know, whenever we'd play, people would ask us about it. And, oh, cool game. Where can I get one? And uh, finally, the light bulb went off. And we're like, huh, I wonder if we can, like, bring this thing back to life. So um, that's what we did. That's cool. And at the time, were you working in a corporate job? And were you, like, ready to kind of go on your own? Or was it more just like, oh, that's a cool idea. And I'm going to sit and think about it for a long time. Well, we did the thinking thing for a couple of years. And I think that's what most people do with an idea, right? You think Mm -hmm. about it, then you begin sentences with, wouldn't it be cool if, or we should dot, dot, dot. And one day. (laughs) Yeah. And you do nothing. And then, you know, whether it's a few weeks or years later, you see that somebody else launched it and you're like, damn, they stole my idea. Yep. So we definitely did that for a couple of years. And then finally I was like, all right, guys, I, you know, let's um, enough of the talk. Let's, let's go ahead and see if we can give this thing a shot. And to answer your question, yeah, by that time, that was 2007 when we incorporated. And at that time, I believe I was working for the Xbox division of Microsoft. So Mm -hmm. uh, advertising sales is kind of what I did for about 10 years. And, you know, they're pretty cool jobs, but I wasn't that into them. You know, Xbox, pretty cool stuff. Um, I worked for Live Nation for a couple of years, so sold advertisements around concerts and music artists and stuff. But they were essentially jobs. They paid well. Uh, People were nice enough, but I, you know, wasn't really that motivated. And so when Spikeball came around, like the big difference for me was, I was like, wait, I'm actually 
making decisions here. I have a, I have a say in the general direction of where this thing goes. And mm -hmm. that was intoxicating to me. It was a very new thing, you know, working at these gigantic companies and being on, you know, I was essentially a lower level salesperson. I didn't have a whole lot of autonomy and I didn't, you know, really know control. And yeah, I did with Spikeball. So and when I launched it, I didn't ever think, I, I didn't think in a million years it would be big enough to employ me full-time, let alone, you know, 40 other people like we have now. I thought it'd be a fun hobby. Um, yep. And that's what it was for the first couple of years. And then it kept growing and growing and I'm like, oh my God, like this is kind of a real thing now. So this is a business. Yeah. So <laughs> When, I mean, when you were even first exploring this idea, because now my mind is racing, thinking like how many other things existed in history that just kind of failed, but could come back? Like, what did it look like to take a product that had already been out in the world? Like, was there patent issues? Was there old founders still kind of wanting ties to it? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, we talked to the attorneys and they said the trademark had, had been expired for, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. So nobody owned the name Spikeball. All you had to do was file for the trademark. And I think that cost us like $800 or something. There never was a patent that protected the product itself. So the attorneys are like, yeah, you guys can do what you want. And, you know, this was 2007. The original product was pulled or killed in 1991. So it's what, 16 years mm -hmm. of nothing. Very few people had heard the word spike ball when we came around and relaunched. We did talk to the guy that invented it and, you know, had brief conversations around doing something together and uh, nothing really came of that. So me, my brother, my cousin, and those other childhood friends all chipped in. Uh, it was a total of about hundred, maybe $110,000 all in and incorporated, spent the 800 bucks for the trademark and yeah, we decided I was going to be the one that was going to be running it. So they all were essentially silent shareholders. So I kind of ran it on my own and knew nothing about starting a business, sporting goods, manufacturing overseas, and talked my way out of most business classes in college. So was not more, I guess by the traditional sense, I was not, no, I couldn't have been more ill-equipped to start this. But I think my background and sort of lack of experience did give me the comfort in asking the sort of dumb questions or what mm -hmm. people that know better would consider were dumb questions. So, yeah. You said the first couple of years were a little bit slow. What were you doing behind the scenes to kind of start ramping things up? Because I mean, you look at it now and like you said, you see it everywhere. There's leagues, there's a ton of players. It's very competitive, very intense mm -hmm. players, at least here in Austin. Like what were you doing to kind of create that, you know, scale and excitement around the game that didn't exist before? Yeah. I mean, Going way back to our launch day, I think it was June 14th, 2008, you know, friends and family down at North Avenue Beach in Chicago, beautiful beach right on Lake Michigan and very high foot traffic area, a bunch of uh, people running by, going by on their bikes, et cetera. So we brought a bunch of spike ball sets down there for the afternoon. I literally bought a, brought a clipboard with a pen. And anytime somebody would stop and kind of give the weird look and you could kind of see their, read their lips and they're like, what is that trampoline game? I'd walk up, I'd introduce myself, say, oh, I just launched this company. You got this thing spike ball. Why don't you come and play? And it was like a million turns of that flywheel. You know, we, mm -hmm. we finished year one at, I think revenue was $10,882, if I remember right. And I had nothing to compare that to. I was like, yeah. I think it's good. It's $10,882 more than we started with. 
And then the next year, I think we were $18,000 and the mm -hmm. next year, 45. And the year after that, I think we were over a hundred. And by year five, we were at $1.4 million with zero wow. full-time employees. Okay. That's a big jump from a hundred to 1.5. So what happened then? I mean, it seems like you were doing a lot of things that weren't really scaling, which is what a lot of companies should do in the early days of like trying to spread the word, get the excitement, going to the beach. Yeah. Like, what did you do between those two years though, to kind of, you know, elevate those sales like that? Well, it went 10, 18, 45, 100, 475. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, yeah, so it was still a big we had a, Yeah. We had a couple years there of three or four X, um, mm -hmm. you know, I guess the typical day was, you know, go to the day job, uh, come home, hang out with wife and kids. Uh, they go to bed around eight or nine. Spike ball work begins around nine. And then, you know, back to then our quote warehouse was my basement. So around midnight is when I would do shipping. So mm -hmm. go down to the basement, grab one or two boxes, depending on how many sets I'd sold that day, slap a label on it, drive at midnight to the post office. There's a late night post office not far from my place. Drop those off, come back to the house, work until, you know, keep working until one or two in the morning, go to bed, go to the day job, same thing. And one thing I was doing that I think did allow us to grow so fast in those early years was all of our sales were at spikeball.com back then. You know, we were not in any retail stores. I don't think we went on Amazon until maybe year four, year five, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I emailed nearly every single customer that purchased from us. So, you know, let's say you had ordered one for me. I'd reply to your order confirmation, say, hey, Stephanie, thanks for buying Spikeball set. I'm going to be dropping your set off at the post office tonight. Should arrive there in about two days or so. I see you live in Austin. What a beautiful city. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about Spikeball? And that last question turned out to be just absolute gold. And I wasn't asking that because I you know, was such a, a smart marketer. I was genuinely curious because you know, most yeah. of our first sales uh, were people with the same last name as me or friends that I knew, you know, what I sort of <laughs> consider pity sales, you know, like, oh, Chris started this company. We'll, we'll buy one just to be nice. And so I'd ask people, like, how'd you hear about it? And I identified three groups uh, that I never would have uh, considered before. You know, the first was PE teachers. You know, they were way into it because, you know, the, the price point of $60, they love it and they can make up their own games using the equipment. I heard from Ultimate Frisbee players. I don't know how the seed got planted in the ultimate community, yeah. but who was the influencer there? <laughs> don't know, but I, I owe them a beer or a cup of coffee. Um, yeah. I heard from so many people. Yeah. Oh, is that an ultimate tournament? I saw it. Or my buddy that plays ultimate told me about it. And then the third group was faith-based youth groups. Again, okay. no clue how that happened. Um, but within that group, I heard from a lot of people at Young Life and I had never heard of Young Life before. So I Googled it and I learned that it's this like gigantic worldwide, like high school Christian group thing. And they all get together like once a week in their local chapters and have some sort of group activity. And it was quickly becoming spike ball. So with each of those, once I had sort of identified that there was a fire burning within those communities, it's like, all right, how can I pour gas on this fire? So started giving free sets to PE teachers saying, oh, do you know of any other PE teachers at other schools? Hey, ultimate players. How about I sponsor your team and I'll give you guys a bunch of free sets and you have to give a free one to your favorite opponent at every tournament you play. And these are college mm -hmm. ultimate teams. So, yeah. um, and they're playing at the tournament. So now tons of other college students at all these other colleges are seeing our product. And, and the cool thing was, you know, they're not seeing it from 
me, you know, somebody that works for the company that's out there that has this ulterior motive trying to sell you something, it's from one of their peers. And that I think was pretty critical. And, you know, the, the Young Life sets, when we'd send out free sets, we'd say, hey, this is compliments of this other Young Life group. They thought you would like it. Oh, so cool. that I think, you know, because when I launched a company, again, knowing nothing, I was like, okay, it's sports. It's probably going to be younger folks. So 18 to 34 year old males is probably our target. You know, Coca-Cola doesn't even have a marketing budget big enough to go after a target that wide. I, I just didn't know any better. But asking that question, I was able to identify these smaller niche groups. And that I think gave us a bit of a turbo boost to, to keep going. So that's great. I mean, you were tapping into all the things people talk about now, like personalizing the email, you know, I see you're in Austin and then asking, you know, where did this come from? I love that. And then yeah. also the piece around essentially setting your customers up to be the heroes by saying, oh, this gift is coming from someone else. So you're stepping back and not even kind of being in the arena and letting the customers kind of talk to each other, which I think is brilliant and a much more organic way to kind of spread. Absolutely. And, you know, organic, we hear, we hear that a ton. The other, like the, the highest compliment I can receive, and we, we, we do hear it from time to time, is when people just tell us how authentic our brand is. Mm-hmm. I've shared this with others in that I don't necessarily, we don't need Spikeball to be in the spotlight. If we are, great, but that's not the goal. We want to work with the leader in whatever community and how can we help he or she develop their own uh, community in their hometown and make them the king or the queen. We'll give them free equipment. We'll give them whatever support we can. And, you know, that usually shows up in the form of somebody starting a club at high school, somebody starting a club in college or uh, people running tournaments. You know, we as a company, we run a couple dozen tournaments uh, per year. You know, we just had our national championship a few weeks ago, had almost a thousand players there, which is just insane. But if you look at the number of events we host versus how many just happen total, Mm -hmm. it's a tiny percentage. Um, And I love that. I want the community to have that ownership and I want them, I want local leaders developing everywhere. And how can we stay, stay in the background, but help them build this big thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's our general approach and knock on wood, it's been working so far. Yeah, that's great. So when, I mean, when thinking about letting the community kind of run these tournaments and kind of, you know, getting into the community, do you have like guiding principles to kind of help them get started? Because I could see, you know, if there aren't really some core themes to like stick with all of a sudden there's like a thousand different ways to play spike ball. People are going to different, you know, communities and being like, that's not how you play. So like, <laughs> how do you set up the kind of the leader of that community up for success? So then it spreads in a way that's like true to the brand and the actual game. In the early days when we'd host tournaments and we'd have, you know, people from the West coast flying to East coast and vice yeah. versa, there were mm-hmm. definitely very uh, uneven rules, mm-hmm. um, not uneven, but inconsistent. There's a tournament at Harvard and uh, their rules around serving were wildly different. And so lots of confusion. Mm-hmm. We standardized a lot of that. Um, but again, it wasn't me and some other employees sitting in a room just determining what the rules are going to be. We're in the room, but we're in the room with players and other community members and saying, hey, guys, and, and you know, kind of debating and going back and forth saying, here's what we think it should be. What do you think? So it's done together. You know, I don't want, especially around rules of this sport, I don't want you know, the company demanding or making uh, these changes. Well, I want everything to be done in conjunction with, with uh, community. So, you know, we do have, uh, there are official rules to this sport. We're way more formal today than, of course, we were years ago. 
Spikeball is um, the name of the company, the brand, but it's actually not the name of the sport. The name of the sport actually is round net. Uh, oh, really? So, so Spikeball is a company that makes equipment for the sport of round net. Most people don't know that. And I had to come up with the term round net because if we kept using Spikeball the way it was, it would become a generic term. And if it became a generic term, we lose the trademark. And now that, you know, much, much more difficult to, you know, and I learned this through, I was speaking with a woman named uh, Mary Horwath. Uh, She used to head up marketing at Rollerblade and, you know, way back in the day in the eighties and nineties when they were first blowing up. And she's the one that came up with the term inline skates because people were using Rollerblade in a generic fashion. So she's like, Chris, get ahead of this early. You need a, you know, just like the name baseball or basketball, right? Nobody owns the name to that word. Yeah. It's generic. Everybody can use it. And we had to do that because, you know, the vision of our company is to become the next great global sport. Okay. If we want it to become a big legitimate sport, it needs to have a generic name. So mm-hmm. uh, with that said, there is the IRF, which is the International Roundnet Federation. There are a couple dozen countries that are members of that. There is a board for it. It is a legal nonprofit. But then there's also the Spikeball Roundnet Association, which is what the company is involved in. And we will sponsor different groups, sponsor mm-hmm. different teams, tournament directors, et cetera. So trying to build this entire ecosystem around this new sport, Spikeball is sort of the, you know, not sort of, it's the biggest company supporting it. We're starting to see smaller companies, like, you know, some people are developing apparel brands around Roundnet, others are creating like training videos and stuff like that. So I'm hoping it will, this entire Mm -hmm. ecosystem will build up and, you know, we all will sort of build businesses together, but it's a lot, but it's fun. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. When you think about, you know, big brands who kind of like Google, everyone wants to be that, where it's like your company is so amazing that it's used in everyday language. But I never actually thought about the implications of like, does it become generic? Then you lose, you know, all your ability to defend the brand. That's really good. I feel like that's the first time I've ever heard yeah. this. So you're spreading your knowledge and it'll help everyone listening, which I love that. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to, uh, forget his exact title, but I think he was like the, the lead attorney at CrossFit. Mm-hmm. And this was years ago, but he was telling me, he's like, we spend an ungodly amount of money every year defending our trademarks. A lot of people think CrossFit is a sport and yep. they use it in a generic fashion. So they unfortunately have to like sue CrossFit gym owners for using it in an inappropriate fashion. And mm-hmm. um, they're making it work, right? Crazy successful company. But yeah, he was like, be careful because if you do it wrong, it can really come back to bite you. So um, wow, what a, what a great lesson to learn early on. So you can <laughs> yes. avoid all those legal costs. 
So you guys went on Shark Tank. I think it was around 2015 or so. Is that? Yep. yep. Okay. I want to hear about that because we've had a couple other companies on the show who've been on there. Everyone has different experiences. Some people got offers, some took them, some didn't, some didn't get anything, but lots of exposure. I want to hear a bit of the behind the scenes of like, what was, what was that like for you? Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Anytime I get a call from an entrepreneur saying, I'm thinking of going on or thinking of applying, my answer is always yes, go for Mm -hmm. it. We did do a deal on the show. I did it with Damon John, but the deal never closed. Yeah, we spoke a few times after filming and never quite saw eye to eye on general future of the company. And that was fine. You know, there's no hard feelings. But yeah, it was an amazing experience. We, um, the tricky part was, you know, we filmed in, I think it was like October of 2014, but we didn't air until May of 2015. Did you know that? Like, did they tell you like it's not happening until then? No. So after okay. you film... After you film, they basically, the producers, you know, as you're leaving, they'll say, they say, Hey, thanks. You know, we thought it went great or whatever. And, um, if your episode is going to air, we'll call you two weeks before it airs. And if we never call, then it's not going to air. Um, but you know, if you felt you filmed this season, Chris, so if it's not in this season, it's never going to air. So it's not like it'll go to the next season. But what that means is if you've only got two weeks to prepare, And, you know, it takes us 90 to 100 days to get our product from the factory. Mm -hmm. So we need an insane amount of inventory to prepare for what, you know, could just be a windfall of sales. So, you know, we had our our warehouse was just bursting at the seams for those seven, eight months for an event that we never knew was going to, if it was going to happen or not. Um, So you were preparing, you're like, we are going to air and you were preparing your warehouse for it. Obviously, after we finished filming, I knew that we had done a deal. Mm -hmm. But just because you've done a deal does not mean you're going to air. The only people that care about your the quality of your actual business are the sharks. The only thing that producers care about is were you entertaining? Mm -hmm. If you get a deal done, but you are the most boring person in the world, you're probably not going to get on air. Yeah. Did you know that before going on, and did you prepare yourself to be entertaining? (laughs) I can't tell you how many episodes I watched. I talked Mm -hmm. to a handful of people that had been on it before and um, did know, like usually the people that, you know, just get eaten alive by the sharks. Those are usually people that uh, it's not that they have a poor business. It's that they didn't prepare Mm -hmm. uh, for the show. Like either they didn't know their numbers or, you know, sometimes people are just jerks. They just show up and they're way more arrogant than they should be or, you know. So I wanted to make sure I knew my numbers. Um, I knew I had a rock solid business. Even before Shark Tank, we were already skyrocketing. We were profitable. So I was like, all right, even if things go terrible, we'll be fine. But here's another thing. Right right when the entrepreneur walks through the doors and you see them walking out, that's literally the first time they've seen the sharks. So when I flew out there, I assumed that, I don't know, probably meet the sharks before we film, maybe have a cup of coffee backstage. uh, And then we'd go do the thing. No, they want that element of surprise. And, um, you know, and it makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, the producer's like, all right, as soon as you walk through the doors, you'll see like an X out there. So just stand there. And you have to stand there in complete silence for a minute or two while we get the audio and lighting and everything set up. Wow. And awkward. <laughs> awkward in all caps. I mean, you're standing there. It's just your arms by your side. And you're maybe 12 feet from the five sharks that are just, you know, facing you. Mm-hmm. Incomplete silence. I mean, even doing that with a good friend of yours is awkward, yeah. right? So Let weird. alone yep. five sharks. So, you know, the the one or two minutes felt like it was about six months. But and then finally somebody yelled action or go or I don't know what. And then I had to do the memorized part. And 
in general, I'm terrible at memorizing things. Yep, um, same. But I can't tell you how many times I had practiced the uh, pitch and, you know, I literally recorded it and that was what I'd listened to on the drive to and from work. It was myself and we had four others. They were, uh, they played a couple points, but they weren't, they didn't, uh, they weren't talking. But the night before, you know, we were out in the parking lot of the hotel until about midnight practicing our entrance. Once the pitch was over and we got to Q&A, that's when I was able to exhale. And I was like, all right, I know my stuff. I've got a great business. I can now be confident. And yeah, it was a great, great experience. We, and we still get reruns to this day. Like it was six years ago that it aired and reruns are airing all over the world. Like mm-hmm. a year or two ago, we got, you know, we get emails from retailers all over the world, not often, but maybe a couple of weeks saying, Hey, we'd like to carry your product. Mm-hmm. And in one day we got five separate emails from retailers in Norway. I'm like, that's weird. What's going on in Norway? It turns out Shark Tank had run the night before. So it's the it's gift this... that keeps giving for exactly. years and years. Exactly. That's that's the definition of good evergreen content right there. Some content marketing. So, yes. I mean, thinking about today's landscape, I mean, I'm guessing, like you said, it runs on Shark Tank and you know, any other initiatives you're doing, you get some pretty big spikes in orders. What are you doing behind the scenes? Because, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of my guests, of course, around all the logistics and supply chain issues. And like, what are you doing when your spikes sometimes might not, you know, you're not prepared for reruns to give you big, you know, orders? Yeah. The unfortunate thing that we're doing right now is spending a lot of money. You know, we used to pay pre-COVID, we'd spend maybe around $5,000, I think it was maybe five or $6,000 to get a 40-foot steel container from China to our warehouse in Kankakee, which is just south of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So five, $6,000. Uh, we're now paying about $28,000 for that same container. So multiply that by however many hundreds of containers and holy smokes, that is just painful. Mm-hmm. So we're making it work. We're you know having to you know really increase our financial skills and sort of managing cash flow. But, you know, if we, you know, we're talking with a lot of our customers about doing more FOB, you know, freight on board where, you know, they take uh, the freight in China as opposed to us being responsible Mm -hmm. uh, to bringing it to the U.S. and then having and getting it to them there. And we're also exploring like, okay, how can we, can we make the box smaller so we can fit more units on a single container? And we're such a small company, we do not have the leverage to demand better pricing or it was laughable. One of our retailers suggested recently that we see if we can uh, contract an entire ship in order to get better rates. Wow. <laughs> what world are you living in that you think we can just like that Home Depot does that, Walmart yeah. does that, absolutely. But Spike, well... I guess I guess I should be flattered that they thought that was a yeah, that's nice. a realistic, but I mean, can you partner with big retailers on that and be like, hey, get my stuff over here? Like if you're selling at Dick's or something, be like, can you help with this instead? Well, that's what they actually want that. So that's what I was okay. mentioning earlier, that FOB. So Got if it. um it's only the larger retailers that are actually sophisticated enough or have the capabilities to do that, where some will literally pick it up at the factory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think of like Walmart, right, what they're paying for a 40 foot container, I have no idea what they're paying, but I'm assuming it's an absolute fraction of what we're paying. So it's better for both of us. You know, we can charge Walmart less if we don't have to pay that $28,000 for a container. 
So yes, we are working together with nearly everybody to try and get that done. So yeah, with the pricing of the containers and everything else, you know, with things coming back to normal, I don't think we'll ever get back to a five or $6,000 container. I don't know. It's interesting. Like, you know, there's, I've read an article a few months ago saying that a lot of the supply chain issues are due to huge spending changes in spending habits for Americans. So pre COVID, Mm -hmm. we spent a lot of money on uh, going out to restaurants, going on vacations, COVID hits and everybody's stuck at home and we're now all buying stuff. Yeah. Workout stuff, sports stuff, all the things that you're in. Where does that, all that stuff come from? It all comes from China. So, and yes, to your point, what kind of stuff, the number one industry that saw the biggest benefit from COVID was outdoor recreation. So last year was fantastic for us from a top line perspective. This year and uh, last year, the bottom line though, was like, okay, um, sales are growing at a pretty amazing clip, but uh, we need to figure out how to do it in a profitable fashion. You know, we're a bootstrapped company, Mm -hmm. independent, very proud of that uh, and hoping that will be the way we continue. But, you know, it's not like we're going to, you know, call our VC partner and say, let's raise another round. So, I mean, when thinking about what's happening right now, and a lot of businesses like yours are adjusting to kind of, you know, find new partnerships and ways of, you know, getting the products here. Do you think that in a year or two, things will maybe be back to normal and people have to kind of like unravel the new plans that they just created? Or do you see a lot of companies kind of bringing things, you know, back to the U.S.? Because I hear about all the issues and I'm like, man, I know it's hard to get manufacturers here who will build what people want, but it seems like a lot to deal with getting stuff from overseas. And if that lasts, like maybe you just need a new plan altogether. What are your thoughts? So yes, we are talking to U.S. manufacturers and we have been talking to them for a few years now. We have not been able to get the numbers to work. I think we're getting close on one right now. And it wouldn't necessarily be for the whole portfolio of everything we make, but it'd be for a new product. And who knows, maybe that could grow into um, them making more of our stuff. I'd love that because, uh, yeah, just all the supply chain stuff right now. I also love the idea of, and we've been talking about that, you know, how can we make more money from non-physical goods? Uh, You know, right Mm -hmm. now, nearly all of our revenue comes from selling a physical product. And, you know, if it's not a supply chain issue, a couple of years ago is tariffs. And, you know, it takes a lot. If you think of how many things have to work perfectly to start with a pile of plastic pellets uh, in China and have that eventually turn into a beautifully manufactured product that lands at a warehouse south of Chicago. So many things have to happen perfectly between then. And, you know, we are dabbling in the software world. Um, We Mm -hmm. have this tournament management software called Fuengo, where, you know, a lot of the tournaments, whether we host them or independent directors host them, they used to be run on like Google Sheets or an Excel spreadsheet. And you needed a lot of volunteers for tournaments. And if like, you drew up the brackets and then one team didn't show, you'd have to redraw the mm-hmm. whole thing. And it was a huge nightmare. This Fuengo software uh, makes it so easy. You need a fraction the number of people to help run it. It has all these bells and whistles. And we've been wondering, like, could this be used for other sports as well? And we've been talking to people mm-hmm. in other sports that are sharing some frustrations around tournament management software. So I don't know. That's there smart. may be a thing there, but... Even before mm-hmm. that came around, I was challenging the team saying, guys, right now, we're all of our money is coming from a physical thing. And most companies that make a physical product, when they say they want to diversify, 
they usually make some other physical product. And we'll probably, I'd imagine we'll go that route, but I absolutely want to go the software's route as well. Like, you know, I'm very jealous of software margins and just seeing what a lot of these guys are doing. So if we could balance that out and that could be a significant portion of what we do, that Mm -hmm. would just be a wonderful hedge against uh, $28,000 containers. Yeah. What about uh, playing the game in VR or sports betting or... That's my two ideas right now. You've been listening to some of our meetings, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah, I've been. Yeah, I had to prepare for this interview. I've been on all your board meetings. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I could see that being huge. Like why, you know, if you don't have to go in person and can play online and it seems like that space is really, I mean, hearing about all these virtual communities popping up and people buying virtual land and it seems like in the next 10 years, like people are going to be leaning heavily into that world. I don't fully get it yet, but I feel like it seems like it's, growing exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's VR, whether it's betting, uh, we're having some internal chats around NFTs and crypto. And is there something okay. we can do mm-hmm. there? You know, we come out with some like limited edition products a couple times a year. So maybe if you buy an NFT, you get first look at those. Maybe you get a VIP mm-hmm. treatment at some of our tournaments. Not exactly sure. I think there's something there, but could be fun. Cool. I love that. Yeah, that's exciting. I'll be watching on the sidelines and listening. You just, (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. Um, Well, where do you guys want to be over the next one to three years? Like, what are you most excited about right now? I'm trying to be excited about our challenges with supply chain and finances. Um, I am confident we'll figure it out. I am confident we'll be a hell of a lot stronger in one to three years once we have this figured out. But right now, it's kind of hard to be excited about it, but we'll figure it out. I am excited. You know, we had to cancel our tournaments for a little over a year, and that was mm-hmm. a big bummer. You know, that's the best place to see our community in action. Just, you know, hundreds of people, if not thousands of people together. So we were supposed to have mm-hmm. our world championship. First ever world championship was going to be last year. We had to cancel it. We we're going to have it this year. We had to cancel it due to covid so I'm hoping uh, we'll do it next year. Uh, it's most likely going to be in Belgium. Okay. We had it cool. scheduled last year. And by the time we, had, we, we actually opened registration thinking it was going to happen. And we had, I think we had like over 20 countries registered for it. And then, you know, COVID went into full force. So we had to cancel it. But, you know, whether it's an event like that or more of our events on ESPN. So a lot of our tournaments are showing up on ESPN now and continuing to march towards sort of that legitimization of the sport. You know, this morning, a friend of mine sent me a clip, um, you know, the show Squawk on the Street on CNBC. Yep. Somehow David Faber this morning started talking about how he stumbled on a spike ball net on the beach or something. Wow. And here comes some more sales. Right? Thanks, David. Yeah. Like just so <laughs> yeah. many bizarre references like that. Yeah. So yeah, I got another, I got an email from a guy this morning saying, Hey, we're doing, getting ready to plan some like Jojo Siwa, like, tour all over us and europe or something do we let, let's see if we can get spike ball involved in that or something like just all these random things coming but um you know we don't pay for this sort of stuff it it more or less yeah. just happens organically and i think again people are attracted to to the brand so looking forward to do, doing more of that and we'll see but it's been fun cool that's amazing All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show and giving us some of the behind the scenes at Spikeball. Until then, where can people find out more about yourself and Spikeball? Across all social media channels, just at Spikeball. And for me, 
I'm most active on Twitter on at SpikeballChris. Amazing. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Stephanie. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.